Our scripture reading this morning is 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 through 6. That reading may be found in the Pew Bible on page 965. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Well, let's look to the Lord in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the truth of what Lindsay just read, that the light of the glory of God has shone to us brightly in the face of Christ. We ask, Father, that you would encourage us with that light this morning. We ask you to give us ears to hear and hearts to obey and submit to your word. We thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. What is your only comfort in life and death? So asks question one of the Heidelberg Catechism from 1563, written just one year before John Calvin's death and in line with the great reformer's theology. The hymn writers, Keith and Kristen Getty, ask it this way in their modern hymn. What is our hope in life and death? Comfort, hope, two critical needs when confronting life's trials and hardships, when confronting life's weaknesses and disappointments, and especially when confronting the darkness of death. We all need comfort, don't we? Oh, we all need hope. Yes. Life in a sin-cursed world is difficult, for we suffer from our own sins and all that attends those sins, mental guilt, fractured relationships, sickness, death, which is, by the way, the just wage for our sin, and we suffer from the sins of others, thoughtlessness, dishonesty, even hateful and malicious behavior. And sometimes within our own families and within our own churches. So we all need comfort. And we all desperately need a hope that transcends all that sin brings into our lives. So what is our hope in life, and in death. Our passage, I believe one of the darkest and most discouraging in the entire Bible. That sounds encouraging, doesn't it? <laughs> Is also one of the most comforting and hopeful in God's Word. And therefore, I believe, shows us the way of hope and comfort both in life and in death. So turn with me to Genesis chapter 10. Genesis chapter 10. It's right after the table of contents. 
and before Revelation. <laughs> Genesis <laughs> chapter 10. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. Now the sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshach, and Tiros. The sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, Riphoth, and Togamah. The sons of Javan, Elishah, Tarshish, Ketim, Dodanim. From these the coastline peoples spread in their lands, each with his own language, by their clans, in their nations. Sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush, Seba, Havilah, Sabta, Ramah, and Sabtaka. The sons of Ramah, Sheba, and Dedan. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalneh in the land of Shinar. From that land he went into Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth-ur, Kalah, and Rezin between Nineveh and Kalah, that is the great city. Egypt, or Mitzrayim, some of your, Mitzrayim, some of your translations say, fathered Ludim, Anamim, Lahabim, Naphtuhim, Pathruzim, Kasluhim, from whom the Philistines came, <laughs> and Kaphtorim, and Kaphtorim. Canaan fathered Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth, and the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Archites, the Sinites, the Arvadites, the Zemorites, and the Hamathites. Afterward, the clans of the Canaanites dispersed. And the territory of the Canaanites extended from Sidon in the direction of Gerar as far as Gaza, and in the direction of Sodom, Gomorrah, Gomorrah Admah, and Zeboim as far as Lashah. These are the sons of Ham by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. To Shem also the father of all the children of Eber, the elder brother of Japheth, children were born. The sons of Shem, Elam, Ashur, Arpashad, Lud, and Aram. The sons of Aram, Uz, Hol, Gedar, and Mosh. Arpashad fathered Shelah, and Shelah fathered Eber. Eber was, to, to Eber were born two sons. The name of one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. Joktan fathered Almadad, Shelef, Hazamarveth, Jerah, Hadoram, Uzal, Dikla, Obal, Abimael, Sheba, Ophir, Havilah, and Jobab. All these were the sons of Joktan. The territory in which they lived extended from Mishah in the direction of Sephar to the hill country of the east. These are the sons of Shem by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. These are the clans of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies, in their nations, and from these the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. You can see why Mitch is gone this week. (laughs) 
Now in Genesis chapter 9, Canaan was cursed, we learned last week, and Shem was blessed with Japheth sharing in that blessing. Perhaps a near reference to the alliances between Israel and the coastal peoples like Tyre and Sidon, and ultimately, again, perhaps to the gospel going forth to the Gentiles. This leads us to the so-called table of nations in chapter 10, a depressing chapter, but more pointedly, may I suggest, a demonic chapter filled with darkness. That's one reason that chapter 10, by the way, comes before chapter 11, even though chronologically chapter 10 comes after chapter 11. You say, well, what's going on there? Well, Moses is separating the rejected seed of chapter 10 from the elect seed later on in chapter 11. He's separating the seed of the serpent, chapter 10, from the seed of the woman. Remember, Genesis is all about the seed. Moses organized his material to point us to the seed of the woman. For as John said in his gospel, Moses wrote of Christ. That's who Moses is really writing about. Now though all the peoples of the earth came from Noah and his sons, I do believe the flood was universal. I do believe in Genesis 9 it's talking about a universal populating of the earth from Noah and his sons. Nevertheless, this table of nations in chapter 10 is selective. It's not concerned with all the races and ethnicities of the world but only with a selected few. And there are several things that would support that notion. Like all the symbolic numbers in these genealogies. The number seven, for instance, Japheth had seven sons. Just happened to have seven sons, as did Cush in Egypt. He's obviously being selective with that number. And there are 70 nations total represented by this genealogy. 14 from Japheth, 30 from Ham, 26 from Shem. 70 is an important biblical number. Think about Daniel and the 70 weeks. And Shem's line is laced with the number 14. Think about Jesus' lineage in Matthew chapter 1. And there are clearly edited genealogies shown in this way. Only half of Shem's line is included in this recounting in, in chapter 10. The remainder comes in chapter 11. And father in this table of nations sometimes clearly means ancestor. And that's clear when comparing again Shem's two genealogies, one in chapter 10, the other in chapter 11. It's important to remember that chapter 10 as with all the Bible, is selective history with Christ at its center. It's just important to remember that. But what's the selection criteria here? Israel's enemies. Moses focuses on those nations which generally oppose the woman's seed. And these enemies can be broken down through the genealogies of each of Noah's sons, starting with Japheth. It's chapter 10, verses 2 to 5. Japheth's seed, we learn, became much of Europe and the northern Middle Eastern countries like Turkey. 
That's what they ended up populating. Uh, the Lutheran scholar Leupold sees Japheth's seed as mainly Caucasian races. Gordon Wenham, in his commentary, refers to that seed as biblical Gentiles. Most notable in that seed is Javan, which is the Hebrew word for Greece, and thus pointing to the Greek and finally Roman empires. And I don't need to tell you that both were hostile to the nation of Israel, according to Daniel's vision. Of course, verse 5 should be noted, own languages, clans, and nations. Do you see that in verse 5? God's curse of confusion, which isn't going to come till chapter 11, has already occurred. And darkness, marked by chaos and confusion, covers the earth. This takes us to Ham's seed, starting in verse 6, from which notorious enemies of Israel would emerge, including Egypt, Nineveh, Assyria, probably, Babylon, the Philistines, and of course, the cursed Canaanites. Again, Leupold, the, the Lutheran scholar, sees this as the darker-skinned races. Of particular interest is Nimrod, the builder of Babel, later to become, of course, Babylon. His name meant, how would you like this for a name? Let us revolt. What's your name? My name is let us revolt. That's what Nimrod means. And his designation as a mighty hunter, which you might see as something positive, I think is actually quite negative. A, a, perhaps a better translation would be that he was a mighty tyrant, rebelling against all order. And we'll see that in chapter 11, where the inspiration for his name will be seen in the city he founded on the plains of Shinar, Mesopotamia. He also built Nineveh, later the capital of Assyria. Of course, Assyria exiled the ten northern tribes in 722 B.C., and Babylon, the lower two tribes, finally in 586 B.C. These are enemies of the nation of Israel. Egypt or Mitzrayim, was a notorious enemy of Israel, as were the Philistines who came from Egypt's son, Casluhim. Uh, and of course, Canaan, Canaan would be, in verses 15 to 20, would be a perpetual nemesis, a thorn in Israel's side throughout Israel's history, inhabiting the promised land and including such wicked peoples like those from Sodom and Gomorrah. But again, I want you to notice verse 20. Divided by their own clans, languages, lands, and nations. This is all post-Genesis 11 confusion. Darkness hovers over the earth. This leaves Shem's seed. And I want you to note through Joktan, verses 21 to 31 in chapter 10. The Semitic peoples. Now in Latin and Greek, Greek, Shem becomes Sem. Hence, they're not known as Shemitic people, but Semitic people. And they include both Jewish and non-Jewish Semites. Principally, 
the non-Jewish ones would be Arabs like those that live in Arabia or today Saudi Arabia. Now I want you to notice that the list in Genesis 10 goes through Joktan. These are the Arabian Semites who will become sworn enemies of the nation of Israel. Now notice one more time in verse 31. By their own clans, languages, lands, and nations. It's the final evidence that chapter 10 gives clear indications that the curse in chapter 11, when chaos, confusion, and spiritual darkness has already occurred and covers the earth. Verse 32 concludes the table of nations, or maybe a better title, the table of enemy nations. Moses has now dismissed from biblical history this reprobate seed. All of chapter 10 is reprobate seed, non-elect seed. And it's the same thing Moses has already done in chapter 4 with Cain. And it's the same thing Moses will do again with Ishmael and Esau later in the book. He'll dismiss them. He'll give their genealogies and then we're done with them. Because his focus, remember, his goal Indeed, the whole Bible's goal is to lead us to behold the seed of the woman, the ultimate elect seed, which is Jesus Christ. And this requires regularly dismissing, moving on past the rejected non-elect seed, as we see here in chapter 10. And now we're ready to face the source of this chapter 10 darkness. Perhaps we could say we're ready to face the Father of darkness, or at least what the devil uses to cast darkness over the earth. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 11. A little easier to read. I'll start in verse 1. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there and said to one another, Come, Let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people. And they have all one language. And this is, this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they pr- propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of the earth and they left off building the city. And therefore its name was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth And from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. Now in my introduction I suggested that our passage is perhaps the darkest in all the Bible. Why did I say that? That's a pretty bold statement. Well first I want you to remember that Noah's flood is still relatively recent history. Nimrod is the great grandson of Noah. So we're only a few generations past Noah. And he will build 
we'll learn in chapter 10, or we saw in chapter 10, he will build the city of Babel. Babel actually comes into existence, though, in Genesis 11, 1 to 9. And remember that Babel is Babylon, the great empire that destroyed and exiled the southern kingdom, Judah and Benjamin. The Babylonian empire was the head of gold on the statue of Christ-hating empires in Daniel's vision. And in Revelation 17, Babylon is described as a whore. Augustine's city of man. Bunyan's city of destruction. With its worldly seductive system marked by lust, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. See this description with me. Turn to Revelation. It's the last book of the Bible. If you've gone to maps, you've gone too far. Revelation 17. Let me pick it up in verse 1. Revelation 17, verse 1. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgments of the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adored with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus." You can see that this city is a wicked city and it will become the poster child for wickedness throughout the entire Bible. But I want you to notice the unity of this emerging city in the aftermath of the flood. They all speak the same language. No diversity of peoples and languages yet. So though Noah's flood waters have barely subsided... Mankind is plotting rebellion against the Almighty. What's the gist of that rebellion? Verses 3 and 4. Remember, Adam and Eve sought to be like God, and for that they were cast out of Eden. And Cain was dispersed over the earth, became a perpetual nomad for his sin. And now these sons of Noah are unified in their attempt to make an autonomous name for themselves, building a tower that reaches to the heavens and hence attaining, I believe, a heavenly godlike status, which they hope will insulate them from being scattered across the earth like Cain. But clearly God is displeased by this brazen show of unified autonomy as seen in his judgment on their rebellion. He confuses their language, hence the name Babel, which halts all tower construction, and he scatters them across the face of the deep. Darkness again covers the face of the deep, 
and apart from God's covenant with Noah promising preservation, surely he would have utterly destroyed mankind for every intent of his heart is only evil continually from his youth up. And yet, and yet, even, even amid this darkest hour of humanity, we see a faint glimmer of gospel light as men are scattered over the face of the earth. Not unlike the persecution and scattering in Acts chapter 8, following Stephen's martyrdom, where the light overcame the darkness eventually both in Judea and Samaria. And more than a glimmer is the setup for the light of the gospel of grace to invade the uttermost parts of the earth. For in Acts 2, this Babel will be overturned by the gift of tongues, allowing the gospel to be preached to all the nations. But the true light, that light which enlightens every man, both Jew and Gentile, is about to emerge in perhaps the most powerful prophecy in all the Old Testament. For Moses wrote of Christ. And it's always darkest before the dawn. Genesis 11, 10 to 26, I believe, is that dawn. The dawn of a new day filled with the hope of glorious Light. Would you turn with me to Genesis chapter 11? Now the whole earth had one light. Whoops. I'm in verse 10. These are the generations of Shem. When Shem was 100 years old, he fathered Arpachshad two years after the flood. And Shem lived after he fathered Arpachshad 500 years and had other sons and daughters. When Arpachshad had lived 35 years, he fathered Shelah. And Arpachshad lived after he fathered Shelah 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Shelah had lived 30 years, he fathered a bear. And Shelah lived after he fathered a bear 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When a bear had lived 34 years, he fathered Peleg. And Eber lived after he fathered Peleg 430 years and had other sons and daughters. When Peleg had lived 30 years, he fathered Ru. And Peleg lived after he fathered Ru 209 years and had other sons and daughters. When Ru had lived 32 years, he fathered Serug. And Ru lived after fathering Serug 207 years and had other sons and daughters. When Serug had lived 30 years, he fathered Nahor. And Sarug lived after he fathered Nahor 200 years and had other sons and daughters. When Nahor had lived 29 years, he fathered Terah. And Nahor lived after he fathered Terah 119 years and had other sons and daughters. When Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. I want you to notice the break at Peleg. This time only a bear's son Peleg is mentioned. Shem's genealogy here is Semitic. 
But when I say that, I mean mainly Jewish Semites. Remember, Joktan was the father of the Arabs. And we saw his genealogy in the table of enemy nations. But now we look at the twin, Peleg. His name means division, because at Peleg there's a division between the Arabs, if you will, generally, and the Jews. And Peleg is the father here of the Hebrews through Shem. And from Peleg we get to Terah, and it's Terah's generations which will control the Genesis narrative up through Genesis 25. And I would argue ultimately through the whole book of Genesis and the entire Bible. And why is that? Here's why. Because Terah was the father of Abram, later Abraham. And you know that the entire book of Genesis flows from Father Abraham. He was the father of Isaac, and Isaac was the father of Jacob. Of course, Genesis will end with Jacob blessing his 12 sons, the 12 tribes of Israel. But of course, the story doesn't end there, does it? The promises to Abraham were given to Abraham and to his seed. And immediately, we know that means Isaac and Jacob. But ultimately, ultimately we know that Galatians 3 says that the seed is Christ. And all those joined to him by faith. That seed descended from Father Abraham. Turn to Matthew chapter 1 with me if you would. I'm just so excited about reading genealogies today, I couldn't stop. So Matthew chapter 1, I thought we'd try one more. Music to read genealogies by. Matthew chapter 1. It's in the New Testament. First book. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now this gets fun. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amenadab, and Amenadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shelatiel, and Shelatiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abuud, and Abuud the father of Eliakim, 
and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Akim, and Akim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Matan, and Matan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. From David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Well, you know, you could just get inspired seeing the coherence of the Bible. It all fits together, doesn't it? From Genesis to Revelation, it's about one thing. Jesus Christ. Abraham is the father of David. David is the father of Jesus Christ, who is the seed of the woman. He's the light that dispels the darkness of sin and death. And how does he do that? He does that, I think, in two stages. His first advent and his second advent. In his first advent, he came to save the world, dying on the cross for the sins of the people, and rose from the dead for their justification. That is, You and I deserved death. We deserved to go to hell. But Jesus, the eternal Son of God, who became that babe in a manger, fully God and fully man, he took our place, becoming sin for us and paying sin's awful, unthinkable debt so that whoever believes in him, whoever believes in him is forgiven sin's terrifying penalty and freed from sin's dominating power. But at his second advent, he will come back to judge the world. He will cast his enemies into the lake of fire and remove sin's presence from his people by redeeming their bodies and placing them in the new heavens and the new earth, there to dwell with him as his beloved bride forever and ever, and ever. Amen. Hallelujah. And that's the end of the story. Light from darkness. Life from death. The seed of the woman. The seed of Abraham. The hope and consolation of Israel. Indeed, of all the nations. So what is our hope? What is your hope this morning? In life and as you plan for death. I hope you're planning for it. Let me say, brothers and sisters, it cannot be anything. It cannot be anything not promised in God's word. Your hope cannot be anything that is not promised in God's word. Well, what are those things that are not promised in God's words? What are those little things like your favorite team winning? Ouch. Or, if you live in Essex Junction, getting through five corners quickly. or with New Year's just around the corner, actually losing weight. 
or maybe getting that hoped for Christmas gift. None of those things are promised, are they? And what are some of the big things not promised by the Word of God? Good health, it's not promised. Happy marriages, it's not promised. Nice families, saved kids, saved grandkids, it's not promised. Job satisfaction, financial security, not promised. Comfortable retirements, or one that I would really like to see promised, a relatively painless death, you know, just dying in your sleep. That's the way I'd like to go. But it isn't promised, is it? None of those things are promised. So what is our hope in life and death? What is your hope in this life and as you contemplate your own death? It can only be Christ alone. Christ alone. Jesus Christ is the only hope. Listen to me, brothers and sisters. Jesus Christ is the only hope that will not disappoint because it's the only hope that is imperishable and will not fade away. Hope in Abraham's son, Jesus Christ. There's hope in him alone. In fact, he's the hope for both unbelievers and believers. For unbelievers, the Bible says, listen to me, unbeliever, you are without God and without hope in the world. And currently you sit in darkness. You sit in darkness. If you don't know Jesus Christ, you are sitting in darkness this very moment. And all of your hopes will finally come to naught. And worse than that, you've been seduced. Right now, you've been seduced by the whore of Babylon and her calling card, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. But the light has come. A light has come. Jesus died on the cross. He was buried. He rose again from the dead for sinners like you and for sins like yours. And today he's offering you life. His life is the light of men. He's offering that to you. If only you will believe. If only you will surrender your life to Jesus Christ. Oh, listen to me, unbeliever. Come to the light today and be saved. And for the believer, already freed from sin's penalty and power, Christ is the only hope for freedom from sin's presence. The Bible says we groan for the redemption of our decaying bodies. The older you get, the more you groan. We groan for the resurrection from the dead. And Jesus Christ, the one who died and is alive forevermore, will return and raise us to everlasting life. For the trumpet will sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible. And then shall come about the saying, you know it, death, death 
is swallowed up in victory. Because the light, our blessed hope, is coming, dear one. Let us yearn, let us long for his appearing. So how then should we live? What can we do practically to center our hope in Christ alone? Well, first, you and I, dear believer, must examine all of our hopes, all of our hopes, and separate out the ones that are not based on God's Word. And we must call them what they are. That is, if we've leaned into them and if their failure to come to pass is going to rain on our parade. We must call them what they are, idols. They're idols. It's not wrong to desire or even pray for good health, happy marriages, Christmas card families, saved kids and grandkids, satisfying jobs, secure finances, comfortable retirements, or even a relatively painless death. It's not wrong to pray for those things. But their failure to materialize can't ruin your day. Their failure to come to pass can't rain on your parade. Your heart cannot be tied to those things. Otherwise, those hopes are idols and they must be torn down. Babylon is beckoning. Babylon is beckoning. But we must resist. We must repent of all idolatrous hopes, those that are not centered on Christ. And instead, as 1 Peter 1 says, we must fix our hope completely. Completely. In the Greek, the word means completely. We must fix our hope completely on the grace to be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's the only hope that will not disappoint. And here's a bonus. It's the only hope that will actually make you holy. As 1 John 3 says, everyone who has this hope, that hope of seeing Jesus Christ face to face, everyone who has this hope fixed on him and that seeing purifies himself just as he is pure. This hope is the key to your holiness. So what is our hope in life and death? Christ alone. Christ alone. And what is our only confidence? That our souls to Him, to Him belong. Or who holds our days within his hand? Or what comes apart from his command? And what will keep us to the end? The love of Christ in which we stand. Oh, with such a hope. Oh, brothers and sisters, with such a hope, let us joyfully serve our great God and Father, and with all of our hearts, let us sing hallelujah to the King of kings and Lord of lords. Let us pray. O 
Oh, Father, forgive us for making mud pies in the ghetto when you've prepared for us a delightful venue by the sea. Forgive us for putting our hopes in things that have not been promised and will ultimately disappoint. Help us, Father. Help us to obey your word. Thank you for that word. Even in a passage like Genesis 10 and 11, where the light in that very last word shines brightly, prophesying of the one who is the seed of the woman. Let us rely on it, trust in it, bank on it, fix our hope completely on your promise that Jesus Christ right now who sits at your right hand and upholds all things by the word of his power is coming again and will take us to himself. Yes, let us fix our hope on him. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.